The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast. And this is our third podcast coming live from the health conference. Uh, That's HLTH. It's an amazing convening of over 9,000 people, uh, companies across the healthcare ecosystem, payers, providers, private equity companies, venture capital, life sciences, med device, digital health, and really just such a great opportunity to talk about uh, how we treat healthcare as a team sport, how we can best work together, what all the different solutions look like. And so my guest today is uh, someone that I admire very much and actually met at Health a few years ago. His name is Chris Boone. Chris is the VP and Global Head of Health Economic Outcomes and Research, otherwise known as HEOR, at a company called AbbVie, uh, a very large life sciences company. And during our conversation, we talk about HEOR, why is it more important than ever, even though it's been around for a while, and uh, how is he approaching it, his approach to leadership, how he uh, got his uh, very cool Twitter name, which is apropos in these days of uh, the tumultuous waves of Twitter, and that's Data Hippie. So with that, I encourage you to sit down, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and enjoy the show. Well, I'm sitting here with Chris Boone, and Chris is someone that I think you're going to really enjoy getting to know. Uh, He and I get to spend a little bit of time last night talking about everything from politics to Texas to wardrobe this morning. And so, um, Chris, the first thing I want to jump into is I always like to find out about how people got into healthcare. Uh, We'll get to where you are now, but you sort of went from IT into now the Health Economics Outcomes and Research, H-E-O-R, which we'll, we'll d- dive deeper into. But, you know, sort of what took you on that journey? You know, it's interesting. I mean, because really the IT part is really, so my undergraduate degree was in management information systems. I don't even know if that's still a major now, but, uh, but it was at least when I was in school. And it was a big thing. And I think that I had, I had, at the time, I had done literally all of my internships in the IT space, but they were mostly in like the electric industry, the energy industry, oil and gas, what you would expect being from Texas, right? Uh, but I remember when I was going into my senior year in college, um, and I was speaking to one of my college advisors who I shared with that I just was not passionate about the work that I was doing in this oil and gas space. It wasn't fulfilling to me at all. Uh, at the time, she sort of posed what would be arguably a provocative question and said, um, have you ever considered healthcare?" And uh, And my immediate response was, you know, health care, like with a bit of shock, like, why would I, I don't want to be a doctor or a nurse or anything like that. And she goes, no, 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 from an administration side. And I never really put two and two together that business people actually worked and ran hospitals. Um, but anyway, so I looked into it and did some, um, you know, a lot of research and found that uh, it found it felt like the perfect place for me, you know, an opportunity to really give back to the communities, really help 
underserved communities. And so I, I sort of fixated my mind that I was going to be the CEO of a public health system, uh, preferably in Dallas, where I'm from, and really sort of help uh, the communities that I felt like were marginalized or underserved. So when I graduated, I actually then my first job was at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Academic Medical Center. And because I had this sort of IT background via my degree as well as my internships, naturally you're going to fall in IT. And so I started in IT and we were developing and building clinical systems before the whole EHR wave. And we weren't even calling them EHRs at the time. So, uh, so it was a different time. But, uh, but that's really how I got started, um, just mostly because that was my undergraduate degree. Well, thank you for sharing that. EHRs being electronic health records, I think most people listening in will know this, and we'll get more into that in a second. But I do want to drill into, you are the, uh, as I mentioned in the upfront, the VP and Global Head of Health Economics and Outcomes Research, H-E-O-R, at AbbVie. I know people probably have heard this term before. I think they probably heard it a lot more than they have, you know, in the last 10 years because it's become much more of a thing and much more of a focus. In layman terms, what does H-E-O-R mean? Like, what, is the, what does that encompass? Well, I mean, just so that people understand, I mean, there, uh, H-E-O-R stands for Health Economics and Outcomes Research. And when this function was actually established in pharma companies a little over two decades ago, it was more focused on developing cost-effectiveness models, and honestly, in, in countries outside of the U.S., um, because they were already thinking about resource allocation. Many of them have sort of single-payer systems, uh, healthcare systems in their countries. Um, at the time, if you think about it, in the 90s, we were, uh, the, we as in the U.S. were more of a, uh, it's almost like a managed care HMO. You remember those days, HMO, PPO days? Um, so it, it really was much as much of a focus. But the reality is, is that we were having to demonstrate what the overall total cost of our therapy would be and where in, in many cases it would offset the cost of care. And so... If you fast forward, you know, to where we are now, oh, and, and I will say this, it became essentially justification for how payers would then reimburse, well, they would make their coverage decisions off of it and how they would reimburse for many of those therapies. So it became um, value justification is what, what it really was. If you fast forward to where we are now, uh, the field has probably evolved more so than any other function within the healthcare, or we'll say the pharmaceutical or life sciences. Uh, industry. And a lot of that is uh, driven by, obviously, the advances in technology, the massive amounts of data that are out there, the adoption of EHRs, uh, the sort of acceptance of folks wanting to understand more of how these drug therapies are actually performing in a real-world context. So no longer are we solely relying upon use, utilizing clinical trials for making those types of decisions. You now have a uh, a very educated and informed patient community who wants to see uh, not just clinic, they want to see the studies and all of this that proves that the effectiveness of these therapies actually works in different uh, patient populations and um, providers and uh, payers and all the same. And so, we, uh, so you, it's interesting to see the rapid evolution of this field, the type of talent that we need. I always tell people that um, HOR is easily one of the most transdisciplinary fields in pharmaceuticals, right? Because we literally have folks that are trained economists, trained epidemiologists, um, policy, political scientists, clinicians, they come from all walks of life, right? And we all sort of come together in order to really create this uh, 
or generate this value evidence that would ultimately be the value story of why this therapy works and works for these particular patients. And that's our focus. Well, that makes sense. And one of the things I want to sort of use as a juxtaposition here is when I met you for the first time, it was actually at the health conference, which is where we are now. You were at Pfizer. And and part of why I want people to hear this is because I think you came from a little bit more of that data. You know, you, you mentioned the economist and everything else like that. And I love the convergence of these things. But what do you do today that's different? I think you partially answered that than when you were at Pfizer. Yeah, no. Uh, so the thing is that, yeah, I mean, kind of going back to your initial question around sort of the IT background and how we ended up here and why, why does a guy like me with my background lead a function like this? Um, you know, and, and if you would have asked me before I joined AV, I probably had no sort of aspiration or vision to lead uh, effectively an HR function in a traditional sense because there wasn't as much alignment. When I was at Pfizer, you know, my first role there was uh, the VP of Real Data and Analytics. And then my second role before I left was the VP of Global Medical Epidemiology and Big Data Analysis. Now, the commonality with both of those still boils down to real-world evidence. It was just the context in which we applied it. The first one was more, um, more commercially focused, right? So we worked very closely with HUR. We were generating evidence that would support uh, many of our sort of uh, market access decisions. Um, the second was more focused on how do we incorporate the use of big data and real-world evidence um, in more of an R&D uh, efforts and initiatives. And that was sort of uh, cutting edge, certainly at the time. And we were figuring out how we use real evidence in our discovery efforts, when we were to characterize diseases or populations that were afflicted by these diseases to make better decisions around our trials, or we wanted to figure out alternative ways to generate evidence outside of the trial. And so, um, so that was really that. But I think, so I, I kind of came from this um, I think every role I've been in, I've been sort of a builder of sorts, like building a new capability, a new function within a company. When, um, when I first, you know, engaged with AV, it was, they were looking for a transformational leader and that's what I am. Right. And so I go in and I build these capabilities and these functions within the organization. I get the great fortune of working with some super talented people in order to make that happen, which I love. And, and I can, I'm one of the fortunate people that can say every role, leadership role I've had, I've, I've been able to sort of recruit and retain uh, very talented individuals to make that happen. It certainly is just not me. So, Well, now that you mentioned that, I remember in some of the background reading I did that there was a question about your leadership style. And I think yeah. that's critically important. And especially you're a, a black man, right? Yeah. And I think one of the things that we suffer from in our companies today is people have started to figure out that it's important to make much more diverse hires. Right. One of the things they're bumping into is you can have the best pipeline of people into your org. If you can't keep them, yeah. then it's actually, it's a really big problem. It's worse than just having a leaky bucket. It's like having the bottom cut out yeah. because people are like, I'm not going to go there because they don't, uh, there's no allyship. So talk a little bit about your management style and how you sort of do embrace the people that come in and retain them. Because I think, again, right now it's more critical than ever, particularly in healthcare where there is a dearth of talent with such a fast growing industry. I think fundamentally, I believe um, I want to lead how I would want to be led, right? I try my best to live up to the leadership that I would admire from afar. And I think a big part of that is really sort of understanding that everyone brings these, they're talented people, so they come to the table with some extreme amount of talent and doing something. 
I think I take it as me as like being a head coach and identifying what that talent is and how it fits on the team and putting them in the best in, uh, position as well as creating the best system and environment for them to thrive in that uh, in that environment. And um, and I think people really gravitate to that level of empowerment. Right. I mean, not only are you playing to their strengths, but you're putting them in a situation for them to be successful. And so um, so I think just, you know, as I said, I mean, I so I have this coaching mentality when it comes to and just like any other coach in anything, um, you're 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 sort of constantly providing feedback and tips. And, hey, have you thought about or would you consider uh, and less sort of, um, you know, I would say prescriptive or even um, paternalistic, you know, like some leaders try to do. They may they create the hierarchy within their functions and and. I don't think I need to reinforce um, that I'm the manager or the head of the team. I think I need to more find out the best ways to bring out the talent and all the folks that we have. And, uh, and that's by bringing constant feedback. That's by getting them, uh, giving them tips along the way and, you know, certainly creating the environment for them to thrive. Well, it sounds like a winning formula. And I think people, you know, any good coach in any sport, like someone that sort of can give them that direction that is prescriptive, but I think does also have a little bit of uh, room for you know give and take. So it sounds like you're very much that type of a facilitative coach, facilitative leader. One of the other things I know that um, you're known for at AbbVie is something called four Ds. And I think people always love these constructs. Tell us a little bit about the four Ds and yeah. what that means. Uh, you know, it's funny because that sort of came up uh, when I was having a discussion internally and they sort of said, what drives you? And I said, you know, honestly, it's very simple. Like I'm, for me, the four Ds for me are data, Digital diversity and drugs, right? And and I, of course I was saying the legal, saying, the, the legal, <laughs> the legal drug. I have to make sure I put that out there because the people will run with that any way they want. But you know, I, I think you know, and, and it's a beautiful thing because right now the convergence of all four of those things are here now, right? Um, whereas I was sort of attacking each of those uh, separately. And I appreciate your question earlier about being, you know, a black man and you know in the leadership role and some of the challenges and things that go along with that. You know, and I, I've been extremely fortunate in my career to have some off the charts mentors who've provided insight, whether they knew it or not. You know, some of them didn't know they were mentors and some didn't know they were providing insight. But um, I've always been a sponge when it comes to learning from other leaders and things that they've done. Um, I've also, um, you know, recognized that I haven't always been perfect and I try to learn from my own mistakes. And so these are all things that I think contribute to the overall leadership style, management philosophy, and, uh, and ultimately how I navigate the system. Well, speaking of learning and teaching, I have a segue to the next question, which is you're an adjunct professor of uh, health administration. So yeah. keeping true to your original dream yeah. at NYU. Yep. I think I've done a little bit of this. I'm not an adjunct professor, but I've taught at different universities and I know what that experience means to me. Talk a little bit about what that means to you and how you stay connected to. We talked about the importance of recruiting younger people, getting them into the fold and how much that keeps you fresh, right, in terms of knowing what they're thinking and seeing things with a new lens. Love to hear your thoughts. It brings, for me personally, it's probably one of the more fulfilling things that I get a chance to do for all the reasons you just said. I mean, one thing is staying connected. I love to mentor, so staying connected and mentoring young, uh, great minds of tomorrow and leaders uh, is certainly a, a very much a passion of mine. Um, I love individuals who love to challenge the status quo. I pride myself on being an innovator, right? So anyone who can challenge the status quo and provide new perspectives on these issues, 
I'm all ears for it, right? And, um, and, and, you know, it comes with an extreme amount of commitment, right? I mean, I think um, I, I love my appointment over at NYU Wagner, and um, I get the great fortune of teaching health informatics and health policy courses and all of that. And, and um, you know, just looking at many of the graduate students that I'm in front of, they're all very bright individuals and they, they're sponges themselves. So you can see a lot of yourself in those, in those students. And I think that, um, you know, it brings me great pride. It, 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 I always don't, I sometimes wonder how I have the time to do it, but you really make the time to do it because I enjoy it so much. Well, um, they're lucky just knowing you a little bit and uh, your style, I, I can, you know, they are lucky that they get you and, and get to be a sponge with you. I mentioned earlier we're at the health conference and uh, you're speaking tomorrow. This will be in the rearview mirror by the time this goes live. I love the title of the session you're on. It's called Clinical Trials and Tribulations. Tell us a little bit about what that is and what the focus is and maybe what you're bringing to that particular panel. I love the panel um, because it is a pretty eclectic group uh, representing different sort of um, almost industries within the or sectors within the industry. So that should make for a very rich conversation. Um, I think for me, what I'm bringing is, is someone who um, is a leader in a pharmaceutical company who is also trying to usher in new ways of thinking as it pertains to clinical trials and evidence generation. Um, it's something that I've been committed to over the last several years. We made, um, I started, you know, really advocating and pushing this, uh, even when I was at Pfizer, trying to get folks to think differently about evidence generation and the possibilities that we had. It's been, it's been an uphill uh, push and battle, as you would expect, um, because there have been folks who, you know, we've been doing clinical trials, we've been doing it for the past five decades, right? So folks are like, well, why would I do anything differently? But I think that what we'll, what we'll find in this discussion, in this panel, is are we, are we thinking about the right things? Are we moving fast enough? And are, do we have all the right minds at the table to, think, to usher in this new way of thinking? Or are we just bringing in the same folks who probably partially created the problems that we have or challenges that we have to solve the problems, right? And, um, and I think that we have such a great opportunity, especially coming on the heels of the pandemic and folks wanting speed and they wanting access to therapies and even the most layman person understanding what a clinical trial is now. I think it's very powerful and it's a catalyst for a change in the industry that I hope uh, that we sustain um, in the coming years, so. Yeah, it's an excellent point. I think if the pandemic taught us anything, it was clinical trials and you know emergency approval, uh, how these things got put together. And I think that will help us, right? Because I think especially from a clinical trial perspective, that taught us how to be a little more distributed. It got us to have centers, you know, closer to populations so people don't have to travel two hours to universities and things like that. So um, I look forward to hearing how the, the panel goes. I will unfortunately not be able to be there. Speaking of, I know you got in yesterday, so you've only been here for a day and change. I don't know how much you get to attend because I know you're a busy man and everybody wants some of your time, but I'll ask a slightly different one than the one I teed up, and that is any interesting themes or topics that have come up in conversations or maybe, you know, any sessions that you have sat in that have struck you or maybe reinforced something in your mind, like, good, I'm glad we're having these conversations here at Health. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I haven't had a chance to really attend in many of the, as many of the sessions as I would like. Um, I've literally been in back-to-back -back meetings since I arrived. Um, I think it's interesting because, you know, this is my third health conference. Um, and as you said, we met in the very first one that I attended um, the last time I was in Vegas. And, uh, and, and the interesting thing that I've noticed is the, the, the diversity and the requests from people who want to meet. I would say the first time that I came, it was very much from your traditional sort of 
biopharma service providers, right? Um, but this year, though, I, I mean, I'm getting requests from PE firms to venture capitalists to startup companies that have diagnostic, uh, uh, companion diagnostic tools that they're creating to startup uh, or biotechs. I mean, it's just like it really runs the gamut and the number of people that are particularly interested in partnering with pharmaceutical companies now. Um, I don't think that that was the case, at least not from my observation, a couple of years ago. So what I, what I appreciate about it is a level of interconnectedness of the ecosystem now that we didn't quite have before. I mean, you think about healthcare and life sciences, it was a very sort of siloed industry where there wasn't a lot of cross-pollination. But now you're seeing a tremendous amount of cross-pollination a tremendous amount of open innovation um, that I think is, is very much needed. And, uh, and you know, you see this openness from the big companies with the small companies, so on and so forth. And, and I think that that's what we need to have the level of disruption in the industry that we, that we need now. Yeah, I mean, I'll give a shout out to Jonathan Weiner and the health team and creating such an amazing event five years in. I know he had a vision. I had an opportunity to talk to him sort of early days. And I think we were lacking this, right? We had the IT and technology-focused conferences. You have the ASCOs and other sort of oncology conferences, but never the two should meet, right? And then you also, you have JP Morgan, where you have uh, VC and private equity that come together with right. some of the startups and the bigger companies, but the startups weren't as present, right? So this is a nice way to bring all of those together. Also with the payer providers, right? And then also some of the like matter, you know, who helps sort of foster some of these uh, different teams. So um I, I look forward to seeing where it evolves to. I have a couple more questions, and, and this one I want to um, lean into something for two reasons, right? You have a unique Twitter handle. It's Data Hippie <laughs> for those that don't know. Yeah. And I think you've been pretty public about why you chose that. But yeah. we're in a time right now where I know you joined Twitter in 2009. I think I got on in 2007, so you know around the same time frame. And for me, you know whether you use it regularly or not, it is something where – you know, if you're an event, it's a good way to sort of see the pulse of things. If something's happening and you want to see it more real time, it's a good way to go because you can see everyone's feed. Um, talk a little bit about sort of with the current state of the state and the potential that we might lose this very valuable tool for all its warts. Like, you know, have you thought about that and, and where, where are you landing on that? Yeah, I mean, so I joined in 2009, but I, I was relatively inactive, right? And I think that um, I'm one of those people that if you're going to use a platform like that, at least have something to say, <laughs> um, something meaningful and something impactful to the society or the world, right? It's, it's how I view it. Um, so when I really became active on Twitter was probably when I started leading the Health Data Consortium, and you know, which is a public-private partnership, nonprofit in D.C., very focused on sort of open data and uh, data liberation or data democratization is what some people like to say. And honestly, that was a time when I changed my name to Data Hippie. And it was really just more for the spirit of saying that it's all about the love of the data. It's all about improving the health of people around the world. And there's so much that we can do. And we as innovators need to all come together and think about more constructive ways to, to make this happen. Um, it, was, it was concerning at the time because what I started to see was very much a push. You started hearing all this thing about data is the new oil, data is the new bacon. It was many concerted efforts to monetize data in itself in its raw form. And while, you know, hey, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm supportive of all capitalism, do what you need to do. I, I felt like it would come at the expense of many of these underserved communities. And, many, and that's when you get into the whole digital divide and data divide conversations. And so, uh, so I, I was concerned about that. So really, 
Twitter became my platform to sort of voice to the world that, hey, the data hippie is thinking that we maybe want to consider these alternative ways uh, to consider the use of data for healthcare purposes and, and many uh, clinical research purposes or all these other things. So that's where it started. So now, um, am I concerned about how that affects the current state of the state? I don't, I, I'm not in the sense that I think there's so many avenues and venues now for people to sort of voice. LinkedIn has gotten extremely mature and I see people putting things that they probably used to put on Twitter now on LinkedIn. So it's sort of a personal and slash professional uh, platform. I think people are pushing a lot more of their uh, viewpoints and perspectives and really trying to add to the conversation more so than ever before. And, uh, and honestly, you know, some of the direction that we saw with Twitter it was a bit weaponized and not in the most meaningful and constructive ways, which is the original motivation for me getting into it, right? I was like, this is a way to sort of positively impact uh, society and not necessarily uh, divide it. And so I think um, it's probably up for a, re, a revamp, a refresh, or sort of a, uh, just like all the other social media platforms, right? I mean, and you know, and it's just, so I'm not so concerned about that. I would be more concerned if I felt like the people wouldn't have those opportunities to express themselves at the platforms. And I appreciate Elon Musk, you know, and his perspective of it being the town hall or whatever he wants, the virtual town hall. Um, but I do think that there are other platforms to sort of to do those things as well. So I'm not that concerned. Well, thank you for sharing. That was insightful because I hadn't really ever thought. I know that a lot more conversations do happen on LinkedIn. I think they're more honest conversations because you have to identify like you that's yeah. part of the problem with Twitter, right? Is you can hide, right? <laughs> and we know that there's a value to anonymity, but there's also a downside. And the part that I talk about is more just like uh, removing the blue check mark as a you know a status symbol and, and sort of offering it up for sale, which has caused a lot of problems. Anyway, we'll see what happens. But thank you for sharing that perspective. I have two more questions for you: one serious, one more um, sort of low key. H E O R. We've talked about sort of where it's come from and where it is now. Where do you see it going over the next five years? Uh, significantly increasing in importance. Um, it may not, um, I think fundamentally the, the skills and the competencies will be the same. The, the function name will probably evolve because it'll be more than just health economics and outcomes research. Um, so there may be a, and then even in, in our current structure, we still use that name, but under the umbrella of HOR at AV, I mean, we have our traditional HOR, we have uh, uh, patient-centered outcomes research, we have real evidence, we have a group that's focused on value-based strategies. So you can see uh, the level of diversity and skills and, cap and competencies we have already. And I think that will continue to evolve, and especially in, in light of the Inflation Reduction Act, which sort of is a game changer, right? So I think it's very essential to have a very strong HUR-like capability within your organization and to be able to generate that evidence around what therapies or interventions are truly working for patients and what the impact from a cost and clinical or outcomes perspective is to the system. Yeah, well, I love that perspective. And I think, you know, we all know, or those of us in healthcare know that healthcare is getting squeezed, right? There's less money to do more with. And so making these value-based uh, decisions and really making sure that we have the most effective outcomes, even if they're um, on paper more expensive, but if they're more effective and they, you know, you can accomplish what you need to in a shorter time period, I think we're just gonna need to see more and more of that innovative thinking. And I really look at that as the lifeblood of where that innovation happens in a very pragmatic way. So everyone keep your eye open and you have a leader that you can look to in the data hippie. Um, last question, which is a little more of a fun one. I always love to, you know, sort of get to know the the person, right? And that is, 
you're stuck in a proverbial deserted island. Uh, for those of us that remember what an album is, <laughs> which album would you pick uh, to bring with you and why would you pick it? Which album would I pick? Um, man, there's several, but I will, if I had to choose one, I would go with Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. That's a great choice, actually one of my favorites. And I think I've done this show, I want to say now probably 300 and somewhere between 300 and 350 times. I have to go back and look at the episodes. I think maybe one other person has picked that, which it's interesting with the thousands of albums that exist. That is one, obviously, it's probably on a top 100 of all time. Yeah. So not crazy, but I love like with you. Yeah. And it's all like to see Chris, we were joking up front, by the way. You know, he's a very sharp dressed guy. <laughs> he had like this really, you know, nice looking but unique looking um, sport coat. Yeah. And we were joking about the fact that, you know, he has his uniform when he goes to work. He, he really likes to look good. So thinking about the data hippie, thinking about Stevie Wonder, yeah. you know, it just gives that sort of chill vibe, which I think as I'm getting to know Chris, it's like this brainiac yeah. meets this very laid back guy yeah. that, you know, you'd love to just <laughs> hang out and watch a football game with. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, laid back is definitely my thing. Uh, you know, I think my wife would always say, you act with no sense of urgency. And I think I just act, I'm always in a Zen mode. So that's really what it Which is. Which I think is different, right? It's yeah. like um, some people always act with a sense of urgency to, yeah. the, to a fault, right? And I think yeah. it's like, no, I'm going to stay calm yeah. and I'm going to stay prepared yeah. and then I'm going to execute. That's what I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry, host of the Real Chemistry Podcast coming to you live from the health conference. It's been such a pleasure. Chris Boone, who is the VP and global head of health economics outcomes and research, otherwise known as H-E-O-R. Chris, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you for having me. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info. 